Book First, Chapter Two of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book First, Chapter Two. She had gone to Mrs. Lowder on her mother's death, gone with an effort the strain and pain of which made her at present, as she recalled them, reflect on the long way she had travelled since then. There had been nothing else to do, not a penny in the other house, nothing but unpaid bills that had gathered thick while its mistress lay mortally ill, and the admonition that there was nothing she must attempt to raise money on, since everything belonged to the estate. How the estate would turn out at best presented itself as a mystery altogether gruesome. It had proved, in fact, since then, a residuum a trifle less scant than, with her sister, she had for some weeks feared. But the girl had had, at the beginning, rather a wounded sense of its being watched on behalf of Marian and her children. What on earth was it supposed that she wanted to do to it? She wanted in truth only to give up, to abandon her own interest, which she doubtless would already have done hadn't the point been subject to Aunt Maud's sharp intervention. Aunt Maud's intervention was all sharp now and the other point, the great one, was that it was to be, in this light, either all put up with, or all declined. Yet at the winter's end, nevertheless, she could scarce have said what stand she conceived she had taken. It wouldn't be the first time she had seen herself obliged to accept with smothered irony other people's interpretation of her conduct. She often ended by giving up to them—it seemed really the way to live—the version that met their convenience. The tall, rich, heavy house at Lancaster Gate, on the other side of the park and the long South Kensington stretches, had figured to her, through childhood, through girlhood, as the remotest limit of her vague young world. It was further off and more occasional than anything else in the comparatively compact circle in which she revolved, and seemed by a rigour early marked to be reached through long, straight, discouraging vistas, perfect telescopes of streets, and which kept lengthening and straightening whereas almost everything else in life was either at the worst roundabout Cromwell Road, or at the furthest in the nearer parts of Kensington Gardens. Mrs. Lowder was her only real aunt, not the wife of an uncle, and had been thereby, both in ancient days and when the greater trouble came, the person of all persons, properly to make some sign. In accord with which our young woman's feeling was founded on the impression, quite cherished for years, that the signs made across the interval just mentioned, had never been really in the note of the situation. The main office of this relative for the young Croys, apart from giving them their fixed measure of social greatness, had struck them as being to form them to a conception of what they were not to expect. When Kate came to think matters over with wider knowledge, she failed quite to see how Aunt Maud could have been different. She had rather perceived by this time how many other things might have been. Yet she also made out that if they had all consciously lived under a liability to the chill breath of Ultima Thule, they couldn't either, on the facts, very well have done less. What in the event appeared established was that if Mrs. Lowder had disliked them, she yet hadn't disliked them so much as they supposed. It had at any rate been for the purpose of showing how she struggled with her aversion, that she sometimes came to see them, that she at regular periods invited them to her house, and in short, as it now looked, kept them along on the terms that would best give her sister the perennial luxury of a grievance. This sister, poor Mrs. Croy, the girl knew, had always judged her resentfully, and had brought them up, Marian, the boys, and herself, to the idea of a particular attitude, for signs of the practice of which they watched each other with awe. The attitude was to make plain to Aunt Maud, with the same regularity as her invitations, that they sufficed, 
thanks awfully, to themselves. But the ground of it, Kate lived to discern, was that this was only because she didn't suffice to them. The little she offered was to be accepted under protest, yet not really because it was excessive. It wounded them, there was the rub, because it fell short. The number of new things our young lady looked out on from the high south window that hung over the park, this number was so great, though some of the things were only old ones altered, and, as the phrase was of other matters, done up, that life at present turned to her view from week to week more and more the face of a striking and distinguished stranger. She had reached a great age, for it quite seemed to her that at twenty-five it was late to reconsider, and her most general sense was a shade of regret that she hadn't known earlier. The world was different, whether for worse or for better, from her rudimentary readings, and it gave her the feeling of a wasted past. If she had only known sooner she might have arranged herself more to meet it. She made at all events discoveries every day, some of which were about herself and others about other persons. Two of these, one under each head, more particularly engaged, in alternation, her anxiety. She saw as she had never seen before how material things spoke to her. She saw, and she blushed to see, that if, in contrast with some of its old aspects, life now affected her as a dress successfully done up, this was exactly by reason of the trimmings and lace, was a matter of ribbons and silk and velvet. She had a dire accessibility to pleasure from such sources. She liked the charming quarters her aunt had assigned her, liked them literally more than she had in all her other days liked anything, and nothing could have been more uneasy than her suspicion of her relative's view of this truth. Her relative was prodigious. She had never done her relative justice. These larger conditions all tasted of her, from morning till night. But she was a person in respect to whom the growth of acquaintance could only, strange as it may seem, keep your heart in your mouth. The girl's second great discovery was that, so far from having been for Mrs. Lowder a subject of superficial consideration, the blighted home in Lexham Gardens had haunted her nights and her days. Kate had spent, all winter, hours of observation that were not less pointed, for being spent alone. Recent events, which her morning explained, assured her a measure of isolation, and it was in the isolation above all that her neighbour's influence worked. Sitting far downstairs, Aunt Maud was yet a presence from which a sensitive niece could feel herself extremely under pressure. She knew herself now, the sensitive niece, as having been marked from far back. She knew more than she could have told you, by the upstairs fire, in a whole dark December afternoon. She knew so much that her knowledge was what fairly kept her there, making her at times circulate more endlessly between the small silk-covered sofa that stood for her in the firelight, and the great grey map of Middlesex spread beneath her lookout. To go down, to forsake her refuge, was to meet some of her discoveries half-way, to have to face them, or fly before them, whereas they were at such a height only like the rumble of a far-off siege heard in the provisioned citadel. She had almost liked, in these weeks, what had created her suspense and her stress—the loss of her mother, the submersion of her father, the discomfort of her sister, the confirmation of their shrunken prospects, the certainty, in especial, of her having to recognize that she should behave, as she called it, decently—that is, still do something for others—she would be herself wholly without supplies. She held that she had a right to sadness and stillness. She nursed them for their postponing power. What they mainly postponed was the question of a surrender, though she couldn't yet have said exactly of what—a general surrender of everything. That was at moments the way it presented itself, to Aunt Maud's looming personality. 
It was by her personality that Aunt Maud was prodigious, and the great mass of it loomed because, in the thick, the fog-like air of her arranged existence, there were parts doubtless magnified and parts certainly vague. They represented at all events alike, the dim and the distinct, a strong will and a high hand. It was perfectly present to Kate that she might be devoured, and she compared herself to a trembling kid, kept apart a day or two till her turn should come, but sure, sooner or later, to be introduced into the cage of the lioness. The cage was Aunt Maud's own room, her office, her counting-house, her battlefield, her especial scene, in fine, of action, situated on the ground floor, opening from the main hall and figuring rather to our young woman on exit and entrance, as a guard-house or toll-gate. The lioness waited. The kid had at least that consciousness, was aware of the neighbourhood of a morsel she had reason to suppose tender. She would have been meanwhile a wonderful lioness for a show, an extraordinary figure in a cage or anywhere. Majestic, magnificent, high-coloured, all brilliant gloss, perpetual satin, twinkling bugles and flashing gems, with a lustre of agate eyes, a sheen of raven hair, a polish of complexion that was like that of well-kept china, and that, as if the skin were too tight, told especially at curves and corners. Her niece had a quiet name for her. She kept it quiet, thinking of her, with a free fancy, as somehow typically insular. She talked to herself of Britannia of the market-place. Britannia unmistakable, but with a pen on her ear, and felt she should not be happy till she might on some occasion add to the rest of the panoply a helmet, a shield, a trident, and a ledger. It wasn't in truth, however, that the forces with which, as Kate felt, she would have to deal were those most suggested by an image simple and broad. She was learning, after all, each day to know her companion, and what she had already most perceived was the mistake of trusting to easy analogies. There was a whole side of Britannia, the side of her florid philistinism, her plumes and her train, her fantastic furniture and heaving bosom, the false gods of her taste and false notes of her talk, the sole contemplation of which would be dangerously misleading. She was a complex and subtle Britannia, as passionate as she was practical, with a reticule for her prejudices as deep as that other pocket, the pocket full of coins stamped in her image, that the world best knew her by. She carried on, in short, behind her aggressive and defensive front, operations determined by her wisdom. It was, in fact, as a besieger, we have hinted, that our young lady, in the provisioned citadel, had for the present most to think of her, and what made her formidable in this character was that she was unscrupulous and immoral. So at all events, in silent sessions and a youthful off-hand way, Kate conveniently pictured her, what this sufficiently represented being that her weight was in the scale of certain dangers, those dangers that, by our showing, made the younger woman linger and lurk above, while the elder below, both militant and diplomatic, covered as much of the ground as possible. Yet what were the dangers, after all, but just the dangers of life and of London? Mrs. Lowder was London, was life the roar of the siege and the thick of the fray. There were some things, after all, of which Britannia was afraid, but Aunt Maud was afraid of nothing, not even, it would appear, of arduous thought. These impressions, none the less, Kate kept so much to herself, that she scarce shared them with poor Marian, the ostensible purpose of her frequent visits to whom yet continued to be to talk over everything. One of her reasons for holding off from the last concession to Aunt Maud was that she might be the more free to commit herself to this so much nearer, and so much less fortunate relative, with whom Aunt Maud would have almost nothing direct to do. 
The sharpest pinch of her state, meanwhile, was exactly that all intercourse with her sister had the effect of casting down her courage and tying her hands, adding daily to her sense of the part, not always either uplifting or sweetening, that the bond of blood might play in one's life. She was face to face with it now, with the bond of blood. The consciousness of it was what she seemed most clearly to have come into, by the death of her mother. Much of that consciousness as her mother had absorbed and carried away. Her haunting, harassing father, her menacing, uncompromising aunt, her portionless little nephews and nieces, were figures that caused the cord of natural piety superabundantly to vibrate. Her manner of putting it to herself, but more especially in respect to Marian, was that she saw what she might be brought to by the cultivation of consanguinity. She had taken in the old days, as she supposed, the measure of this liability, those being the days when, as the second-born, she had thought no one in the world so pretty as Marian, no one so charming, so clever, so assured in advance of happiness and success. The view was different now. But her attitude had been obliged for many reasons to show as the same. The subject of this estimate was no longer pretty, as the reason for thinking her clever was no longer plain. Yet bereaved, disappointed, demoralized, querulous, she was all the more sharply and insistently Kate's elder, and Kate's own. Kate's most constant feeling about her was that she would make her, Kate, do things and always in comfortless Chelsea, at the door of the small house, the small rent of which she couldn't help having on her mind, she fatalistically asked herself, before going in, which thing it would probably be this time. She noticed with profundity that disappointment made people selfish. She marvelled at the serenity—it was the poor woman's only one—of what Marian took for granted, her own state of abasement as the second-born, her life reduced to mere inexhaustible sisterhood. She existed in that view wholly for the small house in Chelsea, the moral of which, moreover, of course, was that the more you gave yourself, the less of you was left. There were always people to snatch at you, and it would never occur to them that they were eating you up. They did that without tasting. There was no such misfortune, or at any rate no such discomfort, she further reasoned, as to be formed at once for being and for seeing. You always saw, in this case, something else than what you were, and you got in consequence none of the peace of your condition. However, as she never really let Marian see what she was, Marian might well not have been aware that she herself saw. Kate was accordingly to her own vision not a hypocrite of virtue, for she gave herself up, but she was a hypocrite of stupidity, for she kept to herself everything that was not herself. What she most kept was the particular sentiment with which she watched her sister instinctively neglect nothing that would make for her submission to their aunt. A state of the spirit that perhaps marked most sharply how poor you might become, when you minded so much the absence of wealth. It was through Kate that Aunt Maud should be worked, and nothing mattered less than what might become of Kate in the process. Kate was to burn her ships, in short, so that Marian should profit. And Marian's desire to profit was quite oblivious of a dignity, that had after all its reasons, if it had only understood them, for keeping itself a little stiff. Kate, to be properly stiff for both of them, would therefore have had to be selfish, have had to prefer an ideal of behaviour, than which nothing ever was more selfish, to the possibility of stray crumbs for the four small creatures. The tale of Mrs. Lowder's disgust at her elder niece's marriage to Mr. Condrip had lost little of its point. The incredibly fatuous behaviour of Mr. Condrip, the parson of a dull suburban parish, with a saintly profile which was always in evidence, being so distinctly on record to keep criticism consistent. He had presented his profile on system, having, goodness knew, nothing else to present, nothing at all to full-face the world with, no imagination of the propriety of living and minding his business. 
Criticism had remained on Aunt Maud's part consistent enough. She was not a person to regard such proceedings as less of a mistake for having acquired more of the privilege of pathos. She hadn't been forgiving, and the only approach she made to overlooking them was by overlooking, with the surviving delinquent, the solid little phalanx that now represented them. Of the two sinister ceremonies that she lumped together, the marriage and the interment, she had been present at the former, just as she had sent Marian before at a liberal check. But this had not been for her more than the shadow of an admitted link with Mrs. Condrip's course. She disapproved of clamorous children for whom there was no prospect. She disapproved of weeping widows who couldn't make their errors good. And she had thus put within Marian's reach one of the few luxuries left, when so much else had gone, an easy pretext for a constant grievance. Kate Croy remembered well what their mother, in a different quarter, had made of it, and it was Marian's marked failure to pluck the fruit of resentment that committed them as sisters to an almost equal fellowship and abjection. If the theory was that, yes, alas, one of the pair had ceased to be noticed, but that the other was noticed enough to make up for it, who would fail to see that Kate couldn't separate herself without a cruel pride? That lesson became sharp for our young lady, the day after her interview with her father. "'I can't imagine—' Marian, on this occasion, said to her, "'How you can think of anything else in the world but the horrid way was situated?' "'And pray, how do you know?' Kate inquired in reply. "'Anything about my thoughts. It seems to me I give you sufficient proof of how much I think of you. I don't really, my dear, know what else you've to do with.' Marian's retort on this was a stroke as to which she had supplied herself with several kinds of preparation, but there was none the less something of an unexpected note in its promptitude. She had foreseen her sister's general fear, but here, ominously, was the special one. "'Well, your own business is of course your own business, and you may say there's no one less in a position than I to preach to you. But all the same, if you wash your hands of me for ever in consequence, I won't, for this once, keep back that I don't consider you of a right, as we all stand, to throw yourself away.' It was after the children's dinner, which was also their mother's, but which their aunt mostly contrived to keep from ever becoming her own luncheon and the two young women were still in the presence of the crumpled tablecloth, the dispersed pinafores, the scraped dishes, the lingering odour of boiled food. Kate had asked with ceremony if she might put up a window a little, and Mrs. Condrip had replied without it that she might do as she liked. She often received such inquiries as if they reflected in a manner on the pure essence of her little ones. The four had retired, with much movement and noise, under imperfect control of the small Irish governess whom their aunt had hunted up for them, and whose brooding resolve not to prolong so uncrowned a martyrdom she already more than suspected. Their mother had become for Kate, who took it just for the effect of being their mother, quite a different thing from the mild Marian of the past. Mr. Condrip's widow expansively obscured that image. She was little more than a ragged relic, a plain, prosaic result of him as if she had somehow been pulled through him as through an obstinate funnel, only to be left crumpled and useless, and with nothing in her but what he accounted for. She had grown red and almost fat, which were not happy signs of mourning, less and less like any Croy, particularly a Croy in trouble, and sensibly like her husband's two unmarried sisters, who came to see her, in Kate's view, much too often, and stayed too long, with the consequence of inroads upon the tea and bread and butter, Matters as to which Kate, not unconcerned with the tradesmen's books, had feelings. About them, moreover, Marian was touchy, and her nearer relative, who observed and weighed things, noted as an oddity that she would have taken any reflection on them as a reflection on herself. If that was what marriage necessarily did to you, Kate Croy would have questioned marriage. It was at any rate a grave example of what a man, and such a man, might make of a woman. She could see how the Condrip pair pressed their brother's widow on the subject, and Aunt Maud, 
who wasn't, after all, their aunt, made her, over their interminable cups, chatter and even swagger about Lancaster Gate, made her more vulgar than it had seemed written that any croy could possibly become on such a subject. They laid it down, they rubbed it in, that Lancaster Gate was to be kept in sight, and that she, Kate, was to keep it, so that, curiously, or at all events sadly, our young woman was sure of being in her own person, more permitted to them as an object of comment, than they would in turn ever be permitted to herself. The beauty of which, too, was that Marian didn't love them. But they were condrips, they had grown near the rose, they were almost like Bertie and Maudie, like Kitty and Guy. They talked of the dead to her, which Kate never did, it being a relation in which Kate could but mutely listen. She couldn't indeed too often say to herself that if that was what marriage did to you, it may easily be guessed, therefore, that the ironic light of such reserves fell straight across the field of Marian's warning. "'I don't quite see,' she answered, "'where in particular it strikes you that my danger lies. I'm not conscious, I assure you, of the least disposition to throw myself anywhere. I feel that for the present I've been quite sufficiently thrown.' "'You don't feel,' Marian brought it all out, "'that you'd like to marry Merton Densha?' Kate took a moment to meet this enquiry. Is it your idea that if I should feel so, I would be bound to give you notice, so that you might step in and head me off? Is that your idea?" the girl asked. Then, as her sister also had a pause, "'I don't know what makes you talk of Mr. Densha,' she observed. "'I talk of him just because you don't. That you never do, in spite of what I know. That's what makes me think of him. Or rather, perhaps, it's what makes me think of you. If you don't know by this time what I hope for you, what I dream of, my attachment being what it is, it's no use my attempting to tell you." But Marian had in fact warmed to her work, and Kate was sure she had discussed Mr. Densher with the Miss Condrips. "'If I name that person, I suppose it's because I'm so afraid of him. If you want really to know, he fills me with terror. If you want really to know, in fact, I dislike him as much as I dread him. And yet don't think it dangerous to abuse him to me." Yes. Mrs. Condrip confessed. I do think it dangerous, but how can I speak of him otherwise? I dare say I admit that I shouldn't speak of him at all. Only I do want you for once, as I said just now, to know." "'To know what, my dear?' "'That I should regard it,' Marian promptly returned, "'as far and away the worst thing that has happened to us yet.' "'Do you mean because he hasn't money?' "'Yes, for one thing. And because I don't believe in him.' Kate was civil but mechanical. "'What do you mean by not believing in him?' "'Well, being sure he'll never get it. And you must have it. You shall have it.' "'To give it to you?' Marian met her with a readiness that was practically pert. "'To have it first. Not at any rate to go on not having it. Then we should see.' "'We should indeed,' said Kate Croy. It was talk of a kind she loathed. But if Marian chose to be vulgar, what was one to do? It made her think of the Miss Condrips with renewed aversion. "'I like the way you arrange things. I like what you take for granted. If it's so easy for us to marry men who want us to scatter gold, I wonder we any of us do anything else. I don't see so many of them about, nor what interest I might ever have for them. You live, my dear,' she presently added, in a world of vain thoughts. "'Not so much as you, Kate, for I see what I see, and you can't turn it off that way.' The elder sister paused long enough for the younger's face to show, in spite of superiority, an apprehension. "'I'm not talking of any man but Aunt Maud's man, nor of any money even, if you like, but Aunt Maud's money. I'm not talking of anything but your doing what she wants. 
You're wrong if you speak of anything that I want of you. I want nothing but what she does. That's good enough for me." And Marian's tone struck her companion as of the lowest. "'If I don't believe in Merton Densher, I do at least in Mrs. Lowder." "'Your ideas are the more striking,' Kate returned, "'that they're the same as Papa's. I had them from him. You'll be interested to know. And with all the brilliancy you may imagine, yesterday." Marian clearly was interested to know. "'He has been to see you?' "'No. I went to him.' "'Really?' Marian wondered. "'For what purpose?' "'To tell him I'm ready to go to him.' Marian stared. "'To leave Aunt Maud?' "'For my father, yes.' She had fairly flushed, poor Mrs. Condrip, with horror. "'You're ready! So I told him. I couldn't tell him less.' "'And pray could you tell him more?' Marian gasped in her distress. "'What in the world is he to us? You bring out such a thing as that this way!' They faced each other. The tears were in Marian's eyes. Kate watched them there a moment, and then said, "'I had thought it well over, over and over. But you needn't feel injured. I'm not going. He won't have me.' Her companion still panted. It took time to subside. "'Well, I wouldn't have you! wouldn't receive you at all, I can assure you, if he had made you any other answer. I do feel injured, at your having been willing. If you were to go to Papa, my dear, you'd have to stop coming to me." Marian put it thus, indefinably, as a picture of privation from which her companion might shrink. Such were the threats she could complacently make, could think herself masterful for making. "'But if he won't take you,' she continued, "'he shows at least his sharpness.' Marian had always her views of sharpness. She was, as her sister privately commented, great on that resource. But Kate had her refuge from irritation. "'He won't take me,' she simply repeated. "'But he believes, like you, in Aunt Maud. He threatens me with his curse if I leave her.' "'So you won't?' As the girl at first said nothing, her companion caught at it. "'You won't, of course. I see you won't. But I don't see why, conveniently, I shouldn't insist to you once for all on the plain truth of the whole matter. The truth, my dear, of your duty. Do you ever think about that? It's the greatest duty of all." "'There you are again,' Kate laughed. "'Papa's also immense on my duty.' "'Oh, I don't pretend to be immense. But I pretend to know more than you do of life, more even perhaps than Papa.' Marian seemed to see that personage at this moment, nevertheless, in the light of kinder irony. "'Poor old papa!' She sighed it with as many condonations as her sister's ear had more than once caught in her. "'Dear old Aunt Maud!' These were things that made Kate turn for the time sharply away, and she gathered herself now to go. They were the note again of the abject. It was hard to say which of the persons in question had most shown how little they liked her. The younger woman proposed at any rate to let discussion rest, and she believed that, for herself, she had done so during the ten minutes elapsing, thanks to her wish not to break off short, before she could gracefully withdraw. It then appeared, however, that Marian had been discussing still, and there was something that at the last Kate had to take up. "'Whom do you mean by Aunt Maud's young man?' "'Whom should I mean, but Lord Mark?' "'And where do you pick up such vulgar twaddle?' Kate demanded with her clear face. How does such stuff in this hole get to you?" She had no sooner spoken, than she asked herself what had become of the grace to which she had sacrificed. Marian certainly did little to save it, 
and nothing indeed was so inconsequent as her ground of complaint. She desired her to work Lancaster Gate, as she believed that scene of abundance could be worked. But she now didn't see why advantage should be taken of the bloated connection to put an affront on her own poor home. She appeared in fact for the moment to take the position that Kate kept her in her hole, and then heartlessly reflected on her being in it. Yet she didn't explain how she had picked up the report on which her sister had challenged her, so that it was thus left to her sister to see in it, once more, a sign of the creeping curiosity of the Miss Condrips. They lived in a deeper hole than Marian, but they kept their ear to the ground, they spent their days in prowling, whereas Marian, in garments and shoes that seemed steadily to grow looser and larger, never prowled. There were times when Kate wondered if the Miss Condrips were offered her by fate, as a warning for her own future, to be taken as showing her what she herself might become at forty, if she let things too recklessly go. What was expected of her by others, and by so many of them, could, all the same, on occasion, present itself as beyond a joke, and this was just now the aspect it particularly wore. She was not only to quarrel with Merton Densher for the pleasure of her five spectators, with the Miss Condrips there were five, she was to set forth in pursuit of Lord Mark on some preposterous theory of the premium attached to success. Mrs. Lowder's hand had hung out the premium, and it figured at the end of the course as a bell that would ring, break out into public clamour, as soon as touched. Kate reflected sharply enough on the weak points of this fond fiction, with the result at last of a certain chill for her sister's confidence, though Mrs. Condrip still took refuge in the plea, which was after all the great point, that their aunt would be munificent when their aunt should be content. The exact identity of her candidate was a detail. What was of the essence was her conception of the kind of match it was open to her niece to make with her aid. Marian always spoke of marriages as matches, but that was again a detail. Mrs. Lowder's aid, meanwhile, awaited them, if not to light the way to Lord Mark, then to somebody better. Marian would put up in fine with somebody better. She only wouldn't put up with somebody so much worse. Kate had once more to go through all this before a graceful issue was reached. It was reached by her paying with the sacrifice of Mr. Densher, for her reduction of Lord Mark to the absurd. So they separated softly enough. She was to be let off hearing about Lord Mark, so long as she had made it good that she wasn't underhand about any one else. She had denied everything and every one, she reflected as she went away, and that was a relief. But it also made rather a clean sweep of the future. The prospect put on a bareness that already gave her something in common with the Miss Condrips. End of chapter two. End of book first.